0: Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. This is Pablito, a.k.a. Paul, and I'm here with my, my good brother, Rob. Hey, what's going on, Paul? Great to see you, buddy. Hey, you too, man. It's been a couple minutes. We've had some holidays um, in between the last um, opportunity we had to uh, record uh, an intro and outro to these uh, these special interviews that have been recorded. Um, It's been a little while, uh, and uh, you know, holidays are always um, you know a big deal, or in one way or the other. And uh, I heard somebody say in a meeting, you know, recently, emotional roller coaster is always. I, I like the way they put it. You know, there's always some good moments, right? Hopefully, with family or some, you know, somebody celebrating with us. And there's usually always a um, some difficult moments. And uh, I was, I'd love to know how your experience has been. Has that kind of been consistent with what's been going on with you?
1: Yeah, that's a great way to to uh, describe it. So whoever termed it emotional roller coaster, I think is very fair, um, especially for me. I I drove from North Carolina to Iowa, 17 hours each direction, had a chance to stop off and see some brothers on the way there and spend some time with family. But, um, yeah, there's something about being back home, um, being in an environment where you are or where I was, I guess, um, around family, you know, and it's it's hard to escape sometimes where you're kind of locked in. But one of the reasons I drove was to have some space when I needed it, and that was – um, super helpful to have my own vehicle to kind of just disappear and take some time to myself. But nice. um, there's also, you know, as hard as it was at times, there were also plenty of moments for gratitude. I got a chance to connect with my adult kids, which was amazing. One gift in particular was, was moving for my youngest daughter. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not always about the amount of money you spend um, or the specific gift, but what the gift really really says. And yeah. I, I, she didn't use these words, Paul, but I think at the end of the day, she, she gave me that look. And the, I think what the tears meant were, um, you see me, like, you see wow. me, you know, me, you know, that this is important to me. And she was moved to tears and I was moved to tears and we had a, uh, wow. a, a beautiful, a beautiful embrace. And, I got to whisper in her ear. I just got to say, I love you so much. Oh, and that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of opportunity to be grateful, a lot of opportunity to uh, pay attention to my body and what I was feeling. And at the same time, I um, was grateful to be back in my own place and uh, back into a routine as well.
0: Oh, How about man. you? What a gift. I mean, would you would you put that in the category of a gift of being in recovery, being, doing the work you've been doing, is, or is that too simple for you? I mean, just, and I love that you captured that, you know, that moment in time, you know, how would you, what do you ascribe that moment with your daughter? I mean, it seems to feel like you were aware. It feels like time slowed down, whereas the Rob that I never knew, but I heard from your description probably would have fast-forwarded, maybe wouldn't have got that gift. Uh, what's the difference between that interaction with your daughter that felt like there's even healing in it from the past and versus what would have maybe happened X amount of years ago.
1: Mm, Yeah. Um, well the gift, the gift itself, she, she asked for this particular gift and I, I probably would not have spent the money Mm, um, because this, this was more than just a gift need. She needed it for college and some of the coursework she's taking. And so I probably would have in the past, I would have just kind of been budget minded, you know, very stuck in my head um, in terms of problem solving for Christmas and, you know, staying kind of within the guidelines and the budget and so on and so forth. So I probably would not have purchased the gift. And then if I were to fast forward to the moment of opening, I, I don't know if I would have been present enough for her to, to just really sit in that experience with her. In other words, I may have, um, pulled it off as a joke, you know, or tried to describe it as something that it wasn't. Um, and those are fun moments. Don't get me wrong. And I know a lot of parents do that and surprise their kids, but I don't know if I would have had the presence and the capability of slowing down in order to just be with her in that moment. And, and I don't know if I would have walked over and, and gave her an embrace and just, uh, let her know exactly how much she's loved. So, um, big difference for me and, and really just for the two of us and the journey we've been on together, it was a, a really pivotal, pivotal moment, not just for the holiday, but in our relationship as well.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Did I ever tell you about my, uh, a Christmas story, uh, gift when I was a kid? <laughs> no, <tell me. laughs> you guys, if you know that, that movie, uh, hopefully there's, hopefully there's no copyright infringes, right. But you'll shoot your eye out, you know, narrated no. by the author, Uh, you know by the the main character as an adult you know it goes back and uh ralphie and and uh the end of that uh well you know if you guys haven't seen it you know fast forward for a couple minutes uh, maybe you are already you know get to the interview that's okay (laughs) we still love you uh but if you spoiler alert for the movie you know he's he really wants that the red rider you know bb gun and and then the dad at the end of opening all these gifts on christmas morning you know then they they look behind the tree and uh the dad says what's that behind the tree and ralphie runs over and you know sure enough it's the thing he always wanted but was even ashamed to ask for and santa shames him and pushes him down the slide you know it's just a whole it's a whole story about that well when i was oh gosh what was i about probably Ten or eleven, I really wanted a BMX bike. That's a substantial gift for a kid, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah, my my yeah. buddy Dan across the street. You know, he had one with the rotor, and it could spin around. You know, and we and we used to go on jumps, and I you know I I pretended like I was getting three feet of air. It was probably two and a half inches, but it was just a great time. And uh, I really wanted a BMX bike. It was big, big upgrade, right? And uh, and so my parents. Uh, I mean, AKA Santa, or whatever, uh, wherever I was at at that time, I, uh, I come out as normal per Christmas morning, could barely sleep and come out to this array of, of gifts. And then next thing you know, there's a bunch for my sister and she's opening up, she's a few years older than me. So she's opening up this awesome makeup set or, you know, Barbie or whatever it was. And, yeah, and then yeah. I have two boxes there and one box, I open it up and it's Legos. And this, this kid's like, I mean, obviously I knew I wasn't opening up a bike, but I'm like, okay, something, give me a little slight downgrade, you know what I mean? But a box of Legos, right? And I remember my inner life in that moment was don't be a, don't be a brat. Don't cry. I wanted to cry. Because I wanted my BMX bike and I'm getting a box of Legos, you know. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and there's a commercial out there that's kind of similar. Because you know, my mom actually looks uh, had that look. You know, she's going back to the camera, the V eight, you know, big old VHS that stood on my dad's shoulder. You know, and she's saying, uh, "So, Paul, how do you like your gift?" (laughs) She's She's not trying to be antagonistic. I don't think, but you know, I'm just like yeah i I like uh, Legos mom as I'm trying to hold back tears and then she goes to Krista who's opening up this big old you know Barbie's playhouse or you know yeah. whatever I didn't care what she was getting i don't I didn't pay attention and uh and then w- what's my second box maybe there's hope in that one it's another box of Legos Wow <laughs> I can combine two whole boxes and and I remember just feeling this crushed you know felt like like Feeling inside of me and but again like trying to put my big boy pants on it's okay you know it's okay i'll get through this i'll get through this you know trying to survive christmas you know and and then meanwhile after they felt like i had been tortured enough they wheel in this bmx bike um it wasn't behind ah, the tree but it was on the other side I of it, it. And, and it made life so much better and then i was so happy that i didn't pull the a brat move and throw the legos into the <laughs> w- window like i wanted to and <laughs> It's a family story that goes on to this day. It just reminded me of that. It's you you had you had a you had a really good moment, but um, anyway, that's just I guess it's just a funny story. But it is interesting how there is an inner life connected, you know. And and we know we have the the love the five love languages and gifts have never um, registered. When I've taken that, I don't know about you, but they've never registered really high for me, but. Um, there is something about, but interestingly enough, acts of service is my number one. I feel really loved in that moment. So it sounds like you really hit a chord of, of just seeing your daughter and, and, um, and expressing like real love in a way that a functional, you know, functionally made a difference in her life. So congratulations, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you checking in on that. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's head over to our interview, uh, Aaron Porter, um, and uh, George Webby, and I think is how you say his name. Great interview. Uh, welcome to the interview after this break on the Pirate Monk podcast. Glad you're with us.
2: You know, listening to podcasts like this one is certainly helpful to your recovery, and so are the many books that we recommend. But recovery is not something that any of us can do by independent study. None of us can recover alone. We heal in relationship. So it's crucially important for you to find a recovery community, a Samson Society group, or a Pure Desire group, or a Celebrate Recovery, or other 12-step program somewhere where you can bring your real self and say the real truth. And there's another resource that you can draw on, one that's been extremely helpful to me over the years, In those times when my recovery has plateaued, or when I've gotten stuck, or I've started to lose ground, I've found that there's nothing like time with a highly skilled, well-trained therapist or recovery coach to get me moving again. Now, sometimes that's taken the form of a weekly counseling appointment. At other times, it's meant attending a week-long or a weekend intensive. If you're ready to take a dramatic step forward in your recovery, let me suggest LifeWorks Christian Counseling. Uh, These are good folks. The hunters and their staff get addiction. They understand trauma, and their approach is both biblically and scientifically sound. They work with individuals and couples. They're based in Madison, Mississippi, but they can work with you anywhere remotely through Zoom. And at various times throughout the year, they also run weekend intensives for Samson guys. To learn more, go to LifeWorks.ms. That's LifeWorks.ms or give them a call at 601-790-0583. And we are back on the Pirate
3: Monk Podcast. We are here with George Webby. Welcome, friend.
4: How are we? How are you? How are we doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Where are you located, by the way? I am technically in a town called Starrett, Alabama. It's really about 40 minutes south of Birmingham. Okay. So you're not very far from me in
3: central Tennessee. There you go. There we you can go. get together and you can beat me up sometime. Or the other way around. I doubt that very much. I would say I'm old, but we're the same age, but I feel like, I feel like
4: I feel older than you.
3: I think you're, you're rolling more than I am these days.
4: Yeah, I, I do it, you know, a lot. Uh, this is what I do. So yeah, I kind of have to, it's kind of comes with the uh, job. So I, I got a list of just
3: who, who, who's George and, and we've got black belts and Brazilian jujitsu business owner, former Marine, former air marshal, former police officer, host, a former host of personal defense TV on Sportsman Channel, tactical firearms instructor. I, this is, this is quite a list. This is, I mean, it's a very Tennessee list. I feel like every person in Tennessee would be like, come on over for some, some cooked
4: meat. Absolutely. I mean, what that list basically tells you is that I was a guy trying to find himself for a very long time.
3: So explain that because you seem to try
4: to find yourself in traditional
3: forms of masculinity based on that list.
4: Absolutely. Uh, and like most men, it probably is centered and, and rooted in a uh, daddy issues of some kind, you know, and so trying to prove your old man that you're not a sissy or a, a pudge or a pud or whatever, whatever word you want to use. Uh, it's probably grounded in that muscle. Not probably. It's definitely grounded in that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Birmingham, uh, more specifically in a town called Homewood, Alabama. It's a suburb of Birmingham, uh, middle-class upper middle-class, um, in sports, son of a, you know, my, my father's half Lebanese. And so we have that kind of influence, almost like a, you know, kind of immigrant influence. My mother's from, you know, uh, more of a country town in, in, in Alabama. And so, you know, kind of growing up like that, you have a lot of different values that are put on you. And so therefore there's those pressures and those usually get, uh, manifested in sports and things of that nature. So, yeah, I grew up in, in Homewood, Alabama.
3: So did you, like, what was what was that relationship like with your dad when you talk about the Lebanese part? Is that, explain that. I know some Lebanese women. I don't think I know any Lebanese men.
4: They hide. No. Um, so, basically, there's this, this, you have to represent the family. You carry the last name. Anything you do is going to reflect on your family. And I know that a lot of people have that, but you're also... In the South, as you can imagine, my father grew up in the South and my grandfather spent most of his time in the South under the Bull Connor days with the hoses and the dogs. And so having uh, any kind of background like that, it's almost like you have to prove that you're not um, a a dredge on society. And so you have that, that you need to produce, you need to perform, you need to stand out. And so having that pressure uh, obviously has its weight. So it's
3: the the performance pressure, but it seems like Based on the directions you went, it was more activity, performance, pressure—not necessarily intellectual. They weren't wanting you to become a doctor as much as a star quarterback kind of a thing.
4: Correct. And oddly, you see that my father has always viewed himself as a star quarterback in high school—one of those type things. You know, your your typical Ed O'Neill—I uh, can't remember his character. I know his actual name. Uh, was it? Uh, Married with children, you Uh, know. The Bundy? Yes. Al Al Bundy? Was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. So having that. And so you always kind of lived under the shadow of your dad's baseball career, football career. And so you're always trying to prove that uh, you're as good, uh, maybe not better, but as good.
3: So where did that lead you as you went off and tried to prove that?
4: Yeah. So anything is really you're doing a lot of things to try to call back home and say, Hey, I did X, Y, or Z. So you get that, Oh, that's amazing. Or whatever the case may be. So what it did for me is it, it drove me to obviously start, try to start my sophomore junior year in high school playing football, because that's impressive in Alabama uh, to make all-star teams in baseball, to, you know, try to place in wrestling tournaments to starting to get into martial arts to show that you're tough and you're not afraid of kids that may try to bully you to, Whatever the case may be, but that eventually had to morph into something else after high school, and it morphed into going to the Marine Corps and then becoming a a cop in in the D.C. area and then becoming an air marshal.
3: Let me me go back to the Marines real quick, because Army and Marines, especially as I worked with guys coming out of those, I met more guys than not that struggled with alcohol, drug addiction, and a lot of sex addiction, whether it was porn or just going and trying to hook up anytime they were off and they really had to detox from their time in the military. What was your Marine
4: experience to you? It's pretty much like that. Um, so you have to, you're proving once again that you're a Marine and so you have different levels of Marine is kind of how they see it. And so you have those that are like, the hardcore and then those that are considered like pogue or just kind of office guys. And so you want to prove that you're a warrior. And so a lot of times proving you're a warrior is being willing to fight, using profanity at the drop of a hat for every single situation. Oddly enough, back then, this was in the nineties, smoking Marlboro Reds and and dipping Copenhagen and drinking whiskey and going to strip clubs. Yeah. That's part of the kind of the mentality at that time. I can't speak to it now, but. It was kind of driven that that's a true Marine, that they're Uncle Sam's misguided children. I mean, that's, you know, USMC. And so that was like, you you want to live that, that you like gore. You like seeing, you know, brains hanging out of a head, nothing. You laugh at it. You make jokes about it. It's just really kind of convincing yourself that you're invincible. Hmm.
3: That's a, that's a, the, the misguided children. What an interesting thing. It's almost an identity built on we're supposed to be a little off. From everybody else. 100%. Which is not very helpful. No. there. But there's this correlation between us being aliens in this world. Yes. That, that we as Christians are supposed to be a little off. Yes. But in the exact opposite direction. Yes. So how did you find your way from being Uncle Sam's misguided child to, wait a minute, I want to be a
4: little off as God's child? Not of this world, right? Yeah. So, um... Yeah, that's a, man, that's a, that's a, obviously a layered story, you know, growing up in the church, I grew up, you know, basically Southern Baptist, going Southern Baptist, real conservative upbringing. Um, And then in my teenage years, I got involved in some youth ministry stuff uh, that had a lot of great activities. I went on a mission trip one time when I was 17 to uh, Rumford, England, which is kind of a suburb of London. Uh, And so I, I kind of felt like I had this call. And then around 17, uh, 18, you start to get in relationships. And and if you're in the wrong relationship, then it can it can guide a man off his course. We know that. We I see that and uh, I'm a chaplain with a men's recovery mission down in Birmingham. And, and that's probably our number one indicator a guy's gonna go back into addiction is if he he gets into a an ungodly, uh, inappropriate relationship, it, it's almost instant he'll be back into addiction. So you see these patterns in men that that happen. And so that generally kind of happened, joined the Marine Corps. God's grace met my wife. We got married within four months, been married you know 27 years, going on 28 years, started having kids. so you start to become real conservative that me being in the Marine Corps and then becoming a cop and all these other things is really about my family. so they became they became really boundaries to keep me in check in these areas. and so I started to manifest it in, in, in performing in, in those fields, you know, trying to get promoted and, and stand out. And then also in martial arts, so those helped me to keep grounded morally. As far as spiritually, you would be in and out. You know, you'd have you'd have moments where you're you're devout. The belief system never changes, but how you walk that out did. Um, so you would have times where you kind of delve into maybe some worldly things and come back into more uh, godly things and, things and worldly thing kind of back and forth, ebb and flow. And that all happened for about uh, the longest time until ten years ago. And then ten years ago, I had a radical encounter uh, with the Lord when He spoke to me through the, through His Word, in a, in a weird scenario. And the rest has been history. I mean, it's been a wild roller coaster ride since then.
3: So let me ask you this, and we've brought this up on the show before, but we've I don't feel like we've unpacked it. Um, I was reading the book Shogun uh, maybe six or seven years ago, and something struck me from that book. Reading about Japanese culture back during the time of the samurai, I was noticing how duty was the same for everybody, whether you were a peasant or a samurai or anybody else, Mm -hmm. and that you took honor from doing your duty, regardless of how big or small it was. And I started ruminating on that for a number of years and having conversations with people that I grew up being suspicious. Uh, I grew up in a very Christian home, and so Christianity could quickly become a duty, and duty would quickly rob the relational aspect of who God wanted to be as my daddy. Mm -hmm. But then by throwing out duty, if it's duty, it's bad. Duty is bad. Mm. We lose the aspect of, no, no, wait. We've been given duty not as a burden, but as a gift to say, I have done this for my children i've earned this money i cooked this dinner i took them to their doctor's appointments every little thing every little duty by which we serve those that god has put in our life is something that god gave us to to feel that sense of purpose and honor and it doesn't have to be big yeah so speak to me cuz obviously coming from the marines
2: the,
3: the police have a version of that that's different but a version of that and how that kind of goes into your blueprint idea of the purpose of manhood.
4: Yeah, great. So when you were talking about, you know, kind of going through that, walking through duty, I couldn't help but think about like the third chapter of Colossians, 17th verse, 23rd verse, where it talks about do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and giving thanks to God the Father in Him and through Him, right? And so it's it's this concept that I'm doing it in his name. So this duty is really a duty to glorify God. And so if we know that in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that that's our standard of, of action is that I'm saved for good works. I'm not saved by good works, but I'm saved for good works. So as a believer, we're not just saved to have this great little relationship with God where we're at peace, like uh, some kind of you know monk, no offense to the show's name. Uh, on a mountain somewhere, but ultimately so that we could manifest his glory in and through us to be that image bearer. We were originally designed to be that mirror that reflects himself back to himself, that silver where the dross has been removed, you know? And so, and we see our life in that vein is like, I can glorify God as a ditch digger or as a CEO of a bank or as a cop or as a you know clown in a circus, whatever the case may be, we can do it that way. And so when we find our identity in that, doesn't matter what we do, and we will have that sense of duty. Yeah,
3: I, th- that's that's such an important thing. Not saved by works. Ephesians tells us that I'm saved by by grace through faith, not of works. So I'm not saved by works, but to be saved to works because God has made us a certain way and placed us in certain
4: relationships. Absolutely, yeah that that have beautiful duty. Absolutely, and I call those your spheres of influence or your AOs, your uh, areas of operation in a military kind of term, is that you have AOs and they interlink with one another. And so in my mental purpose blueprint, we really learn about how you have three distinct AOs every man does, every person does, but every man does. That's a personal AO, which really incorporates your, your spirit, your mind, your body. And then you have your relational AO. If you're married, you have your, your relationship with your wife, your children, and their, your kindred, I call. And then you have your territorial AO, which is going to be, you know, you're calling your career and then your expansion of God's kingdom, how that influences the world. And obviously that last piece overlays everything, but but ultimately you have these three AOs and you have enemy activity in these areas. You have missions to accomplish tasks, objectives, and to learn how to see your life in this vein gives a man focus to work in and through the Lord to accomplish his his mission inside those areas. I mean, obviously the great commission, but even the great commission, it's, to seek the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness above all things and everything else will w- work its way out, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 33. And so understanding that, I'm going to start to work on me personally through the power of the Holy Spirit and working out those gifts, the, the gift of the Spirit, I should say, um, in the in the non-attributes of that, and then and then how to spread the gospel to duplicate that, bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold in that kingdom for his glory. And so in that I find my purpose.
3: Oh, talk a little bit more about the man on purpose blueprint, uh, some of the stuff we were talking about before we hit record.
4: Yeah, so over the last three years, really 10, but the last three specifically, the Lord's laid on my heart to create a system for men to follow uh, that would you know, have a timeline metric to it that's not just very theological or you know, how guys will say, well, we need to trust the Lord. We need to rely on Him. Yes, these are all true. We need to read the Bible. Yes, these are all true. But what is that? How does that change my life so that I can do what? So that I can stay away from what? So that I can accomplish what? To what end? And so each of us has different uh, ways that our life manifests. And so having a blueprint that will help a man walk out his calling from the Lord in those areas of operation in his life to know who he is, what he's supposed to be doing, and how he's supposed to be getting it done. And I I feel like that is discipleship in and of itself. When Even when Paul said, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, he was saying, use me as an example. So we have this blueprint that's three phases long and it's 13 weeks of training. And really the whole idea behind it is to, to train men to think differently about their lives and and think differently with their interaction with the Lord to accomplish these things that he's designed them to be. So the tagline would be this, the Man on Purpose Blueprint helps Christian men, husbands, and fathers obtain certainty of purpose in 90 days so that they can become the impactful leader God designed them to be without imposter syndrome, not knowing where to begin, and not having a clear path forward. And that's really the crux of it. So it's three phases, uh, 13 weeks, 21 uh, elements, nine steps basically.
3: Describe, describe imposter syndrome when guys are looking for their purpose.
4: Absolutely. I, I experience it right now. Uh, you may be experiencing it right now. It's like, who are you to be on a podcast? Who do you think you are? That, that voice, the flesh, how it manifests in us to tell us that you, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. Somebody else is more qualified for this. Somebody else should be doing this. Who are you? It's that condemning voice that happens inside of our own head that holds us back, enslaves us, from walking out what god's called us to do
3: mm. my favorite name for satan in in all scripture is the accuser of the brethren Accuser of the brethren the one that's telling me who i am and who i am not that is the opposite of what the gospel says i
4: am i A-M. am in the person and work amen, of Christ. i should say i said i am at the same time you did. <laughs> amen Very, very, very truly, I tell you. Yes, Um, I agree with you 100%. Uh, And I think that he's a tool, right? I think the Lord uses the the, the accuser of the brethren as a tool to drive us towards himself. Uh, He allows us to uh, deal these battles in and through him against the flesh. I call, you know, obviously the three enemies, the devil and his angels, I call devil incorporated, the flesh and the world system. They're going to be accusers. They're going to come out against us, but it causes us to lean on the Lord and the power of his might to walk that out, to put on the whole armor and, and, and obviously operate I, in the spirit. I love that, that they
3: are tools. I, uh, one, one of the deepest things I want to believe daily and want people to believe is that sin and Satan and my flesh are not main characters. They're plot points. There's a uh, victory is already completed. Absolutely. It was completed on the cross. Absolutely, And so, All of those things, though they can cause so much heart hurt and so much derailing of my movement as a child of God, it's still complete in Christ. Mm -hmm. However, in the gospel, every one of those things, even those moments of my sin, failures, stumbling back in Christ, if he is still intact, if he is still enough, if the blood of Christ is still enough— then I can still move forward from that, just like Peter, who denies Jesus and would never have had the conversation with Jesus being reinstated to the Peter he needed to be on the shore of Galilee if he had not failed. So was it a failure? Why are we always judging failure? Yeah. It was a plot point. It was not a main character. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's lift literally lifting weights. I mean, you know, the, the concept of glory is pretty awesome. It's this pressing down to be lifted up, you know. And I I use the analogy of of bench pressing, you know, a lot of guys have bench press for, it. it's like the weight pushes me down so that I can push it up. And so there must be a pressing down in order for there to be a lifting up. And so we have to experience this pressing down for there to be a springing up of glory. And so I think that those are definitely necessary. Uh, and the great mystery that that is how God uses uh, evil, you know, sin for his own means and glory without being a partaker or author of it.
3: I love it. Uh, I, I also love hearing you talk so much like a military man. You've got your acronyms in place. You've got your intensity in place. I love it. It's, it's just fun. And honestly, for a lot of guys that feels really necessary. They, they need that. Um, there, there is not a friend of mine worked on a book for a long time that I don't think he ever finished on men's initiation throughout the world, throughout history, Mm -hmm. and how most cultures had a moment that you did something and you were declared by the community to be a man. Yes. And that America's only version of that was to go into the military.
4: Yes. What I think you're speaking to is a rite of passage. You have to have this rite of passage. And and oddly enough, you say that in in the Man on Purpose Blueprint – I have what's called a crucible, and we use that crucible—that thirteen-week process—that we walk in together through that. You, once you graduate the crucible and you've learned the Man on Purpose blueprint, you now are a Man on Purpose user, and you can you know use this the rest of your life and show others how to do it and things like that. But there's, to your point, that's that's one hundred percent. That's why I did all the things I did. Everything of those things that I wanted and desired was for once I completed them, for it to say you have sustained that which you were looking for. You've attained it. And it always left you wanting. I was like, oh, is that it? Yeah. what's next? And and part of that
3: is because every other culture was set that it was declared by the community, by the father. The mother often would call you by a different name. You would not be called by a childish name. Like Everybody was on board with making sure you knew yeah. you had reached a point of manhood. Yeah. And so, yeah, when guys go out searching for it, but there is no cultural commonality or cultural affirmation, then they keep striving for the next thing. Meanwhile, God is shouting out to us who our identity is because of the person and work of Christ. Like, he's given us exactly what we're searching for. But you're talking about something that resonates with the hearts of so many men because they haven't had it. Now, what do you say— because I'm thinking back to when wild at heart came out, Mm -hmm. which spoke to some of that. Yes. And I would talk to friends who were not, uh, stereotypically masculine. Yes. Maybe they liked musical theater. Maybe they grew up in choir, maybe all that kind of stuff. And they would read that book and they would be so discouraged. Mm. Now, I don't think it's because Eldridge did a bad job, but that, they were defaulting again to that place where they said, I don't fit in. Yeah. So how does this this purposeful, the man on purpose blueprint, how does that touch the heart of someone who is not athletic, who is not stereotypically manly? Yes.
4: I think, yeah, so it's literally the vehicle. It's it's really how you frame it, right? I think I mm-hmm. read while at heart, I guess my criticism of it, I mean, who am I to criticize it? would be along the lines of like yes it points us to the what and the why of things but not really the how and that's always where we fall short is the how and i think we're scared of that because when we we start to say here's how you get it done that you're now holding yourself out there to be judged and saying no you're missing this 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 and this which okay so be it but at least there's something out there to follow when it comes to yes my mental purpose blueprint how it's spoken to is from this warrior mindset but I don't view it as a physical warrior. Um, like for instance, my book, I wrote a book called You Are a Warrior. And, and in that I'm reframing what it means to be a warrior. Yes, I'm coming from a perspective of God does martial arts, military, law enforcement, tactical shooting, yada, 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 big deal, right? But I, I use that, but I'm speaking to a spiritual warrior. We're fighting enemy activity as Christian men in our lives, in our AOs, in our personal life, our relationships, our, our influence in the world, professionally, if you will. And so we're fighting either way. And we're told in in, in Ephesians 6, 13, that we're not strong against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and dark forces, the spiritual forces in the dark realms, the heavenly realms. And so we know that we're definitely called to fight. We're called to stand firm. We're called to, uh, uh, to, to take the fight basically to the enemy by standing in that victory that Christ has given us. And so how that's manifested may be in these uber masculine ways, but it can also be in these more gentle ways. And that's, Jesus, the cool thing about God is that, and, and and obviously the manifestation of him on earth with us, the God-man, is that he manifests these attributes that are uber masculine, you know, flipping over tables and being a carpenter, you know, and all that type of thing, but also being very kind and gentle and compassionate and loving and having the the, the two elements of that. There's more than that, obviously, but but you mm-hmm. understand what I'm saying. And so, yeah, it, it, it's something you can take as a litmus test and formulate it in your own mind to use it how you want to. It it doesn't speak as being a martial artist or shooting or getting in the woods and getting dirty, you know, and hunting animals like wild at heart would have you do.
3: Yeah, I I'm just thinking while you're talking of guys that are like, oh, I don't feel as manly. I don't like sports. To which I'm thinking you've just you've just freed up at least six hours a week to serve your family. So I'm thinking maybe you've got even more time. To be incredibly manly in your duties to the people in your life, your friends, your family, your wife, your children. Absolutely. Uh, and man, if you don't pay, if you don't play golf, how much money have you saved there? So yeah. you know what?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: So I, I think you're right. It it is the framing, and and it does come down to that. How am I standing firm? Because it doesn't matter whether I exhibit or have the stereotypical masculine hobbies Mm -hmm. every man has to stand firm against their flesh and what's pressing in on him absolutely and every man also you know you brought up paul saying that he wanted to be an example i three different times i think that he said he wanted to be an example in in the faith for these his children and I just think, well, he also said he's the chief among sinners. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't saying well, he's, he's the, the example saints. of not yeah, that he's he's not the example of doing everything perfectly. He's also saying I will be boldly honest in telling you where I struggle, how I fail, what I wanna do, I keep I don't do what I don't want to do, I keep doing. And so he's saying, I wanna be the I, I wanna be your example in how I get up after I get knocked down. Mm-hmm as much as how I stand firm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do both throughout my life. And when I get knocked down, it doesn't mean I'm out. Yeah. It means I'm not dead yet and in the presence of God. That's all that means. I've
4: right. given another opportunity. But I've been given another opportunity. I've, I've
3: I've got the press down. Now I'm going to press up and I'm going to build some big chesticles. <laughs> it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> all right. I want to touch on one other thing. and. And that is, we, we talked about uh, a friend of mine back in the 90s that had the question, he was not a Christian, and he had the question, why would I want to be just a part of the community of the church, just based on community? Mm. Um, because he said, here I am in the gym six days a week, fighting with other guys. I have a deeper community here than I've ever seen amongst any Christians. Mm. And without throwing that out, there is some truth to that. Amen. That within a fighting gym, there are certain tenets of what goes on that include trust, uh, humility, while still having aggression and pressing in against each other. Yes a bunch of things that create intense community that i think are supposed to be a part of a church and i don't think he was wrong for saying i haven't seen it in the church very much you guys just sit there hang out have some potlucks and go home my community's deeper yeah so talk to me about your experience in that world of martial arts and maybe we'll just geek out on this and and everyone'll tune out you can you can turn this off if you don't know what we're talking about but I think it's important
4: that that that's absolutely true what he's saying um unfortunately I think we do not fully how can I put this we don't fully understand what it is to do church and what I mean by doing church is that if you think about in the first part of Acts, they kind of almost, it was almost a communal living. They all came together and they literally became vulnerable to one another. It's like, hey, I'm going to give up everything I have. You give up everything you have. And we're going to learn to live together. We, we have to literally rely and depend on each other in order to proceed forth in this life. And obviously, I'm not asking people to do that. I'm not like a communist or anything like that your nature. But I understand what they were trying to do. And I understand how the enemy could use that. Now, going back to martial arts. What I've found, so I, I double my martial arts schools of ministry, right? And so what I do is, is that men are going to come to me and they're going to want jujitsu. They're going to want to learn how to do Brazilian jujitsu. They want to learn how to best somebody. They want to learn how to take their fitness to the next level, their mentality, their mental toughness, whatever the case may be. But ultimately, the Lord laid on my heart, they're going to come to you for jujitsu, but ultimately I want you to introduce them to me. And so how do I do that? We earn credibility with one another through our vulnerability. We're very vulnerable with one another. We get in very awkward positions. I trust that you're not going to take advantage of it, especially when I signal that, hey, I give up, you've bested me. And so once we've proven to each other that we're not punks, that we're not uh, soft, that we we know how to put up a fight, even if we lose, we still put up a fight. We're lions no matter what. That at the end of that, if the strongest guy in that environment can now become emotionally vulnerable... Everybody goes like, wait a second, I can share in this vein. I can be vulnerable here because you trust that we've already proven that we're not punks. We've already proved that we're not soft. We already can prove that we're to be reckoned with physically, but then I can get vulnerable emotionally and spiritually with you. There's that trust factor that gets carried over and it deepens that relationship. And that was something the Lord showed me that once we've gotten past that, like towards the end of my class, it's like, okay, guys, can I share something with you guys? I want to bear burdens here. Is that I'm struggling with this, this, and this, and once somebody like myself does it, who's like the chief does it, it's like guys are more free to go. Like, you know what, man? Wow! If he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. And there's such growth or such connection that church should be doing this. And I think that's what scripture speaks to. But instead, it becomes almost a job interview to who is the best Christian and who will be hired as the best Christian. And that's why people, I think, run from it. They want nothing to do with it. You have to walk in there as like this. It's almost like Top Gun, the scene from Top Gun when they're all looking around like, who's the best? That's how churches and a lot of men's groups in churches are. It's like guys don't want to share their true vulnerabilities because you're less of a Christian than I am. You just proved it by what you're sharing. When that guy's struggling with things way darker than what that guy's you know, confessed.
3: Right. I'm thinking of the commonalities between 12-step recovery groups and... A Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. There's a lot of overlap because there's a lot of vulnerability. Absolutely. When when you roll with people, it's great to roll with people that you can beat so that you can practice things like hey, I know I can get in this position and work on this and I can I can do it. But if you only ever do that, you don't grow. You have to be vulnerable enough to say, "Okay, I'm going to roll with that guy and I'm probably going to lose." Mm-hmm. I, I have very little respect for any, uh, well, I won't say which group of people, uh, groups of martial artists who are like, I've been doing this for 25 years and never lost a fight. I'm thinking you're probably not a very good fighter. Then. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, well that too, but it, it is that vulnerability of saying, I have, I have to put myself in the position to lose, which in the emotional, uh, intimacy realm is i have to be able to speak of things that i'm afraid you'll lose respect for me that you'll judge me that i'll be on the outs i have to put myself there so that i can receive we we in our gifts are the various manifestations of god's grace mm. we receive the physical grace of god when we see a man not flinch
2: mm.
3: when we're honest mm when we quote, lose, mm. but when we lose, that makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking, I also thought of, uh, I, I got the, the, the privilege of getting to spend some time with, a a guy named Dan Inosanto, who was Bruce Lee's student who taught 90% of Bruce Lee's classes. And when he was younger, he was a, a feisty Filipino man that was a high school teacher. And, uh, there, there was one time that Bruce Lee was coming downstairs and was looking a little, uh, puffy and they're like, what just happened? He's like, I was just working out with Dan. He's, he's just a crazy bad mother effer. Like, that's a good compliment. And I remember Dan saying in one of his classes, when I was younger, I thought I needed to be angry and full of hate for anyone that I Mm. And as I've grown older, I realize how much more powerful love and compassion is. And it's that same situation you're talking about where all of a sudden for the guys, the young guys who are in there six days a week being aggressive. How do I, how do I submit people? How do I dominate people? You got a guy saying, I used to be like you, Mm. but I'm older now and I'm way wiser. Mm -hmm. And, and it just kind of, brings this equilibrium to, yes, we're in a world of fighting and struggling and standing firm, but there is also this call for us to be compassionate, that our strength comes out in the compassion of Christ, in the mercy of Christ, that mercy triumphs over judgment, that I don't have to just be aggressive and judgmental, that mercy will be powerful in the armory of God. Mm.
4: When I, I took martial arts years ago, uh, when I you know, I got really b- heavily back into it when I was a cop and, and I ran into a guy who said he was a pacifist and he would train four or five times a week, you know, and I was like, I don't think you know what that term means. <laughs> you know, <you're- laughs> and I said, you got to explain this to me, man. How are you a pacifist? You know, and, and he said, well, listen, I want to choose pacifism. I don't want it chosen for me. And I was like, wow. And so what you're speaking to is in order to learn how to heal, I think you need to learn how to kill and vice versa. And so we have to kind of understand the opposite side of that coin, not to become a part of it, but at least experience it. And so how do I even have a context for wet unless I know dry and dry unless I know wet? And so same goes for compassion, love, unless I understand what hate and things are and see the damaging effects of it. And so, yeah, I think that, that, uh, I think that that's uh, what you're speaking to. That's a huge thing. I
3: I did, for two years, I did thing called Veritas conferences put on by Campus Crusade. Oh, no, they're called Crew now. Sorry. No more Crusade. Yeah, yeah. The Crew. But they did Veritas uh, conferences at colleges. And two years, I did one on uh, Christianity and the martial arts, which was basically pacifism versus participating in something where you learn to choke people and break people's arms and punch them in the face. Right. And it's so interesting that justice in this world is more nuanced. Jesus talked about turning the other cheek, which was, of course, a Jewish idiom that's no different than now. That was a slap in the face, it was a verbal thing. That's right. But when Jesus was physically slapped in the face when he was on trial, he turned to the soldier that slapped him and said, Why did you slap me? what did I say wrong? He confronted him. He didn't turn, he did not physically turn his other cheek, which should show us that Christians aren't called to be victims. We're called to be engaged, but engaged appropriately and with mercy and compassion, which is so
4: nuanced. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Self-defense and vengeance are two different things. You know, If you slap me on my face and then I have an opportunity to, to know what just happened and therefore turn and get mine back, that's vengeance and vengeance belongs to the Lord. But self-defense is a completely different animal. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
3: Well, I, I love this. How do people, uh, find out more about what you're doing about your, your blueprint program? Where do they go?
4: How do they connect? With yeah. So we're still, we're still working the bugs out. We we've run through a beta course, uh, getting it done. I've, I've done it live action. I've done it through zoom calls, kind of a lot of the the popular kind of group things are being done online. So we're going to launch another one in February, a crucible, the man's purpose, uh, blueprint crucible. Um, net is the web address for that um and then also if anybody's interested in men's recovery missions like i said i'm a chaplain at at brother brian mission downtown birmingham it's bbmission.com so you can uh you can go and check those things out as well
3: all right well if i'm ever in birmingham i'll have to hit you up and if you're ever coming up the nashville way let me know we'll
4: hang out absolutely absolutely we'll do Well, welcome back to the
1: Pirate Monk Podcast with Pablito and Rob. Um, hey, Paul, great to uh, great to be with you, and interesting interview with George Webby and Aaron. I, I'm really interested in, in maybe what stood out to you as you reflect on uh, the conversation.
0: Absolutely, thanks for asking. Um, I really, I thought it was intriguing, uh, and, and it was it was helpful for me to recognize how um, he spoke about. Trying to pursue be the stereotypical man uh, that's earning his dad's approval. By the way, he talked about having some father wounds, and and by doing the stereotypical manly, masculine kind of activities, a guy that sounds like he could beat people up. You know, he's he he, he teaches jujitsu and uh, uh, Marine Corps um, uh, and and just other you know shooting. Uh, uh, what do you call that when it's when they're expert you know marksman Marksman. you know things that he was talking about there and 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 it just really you know you know michael Kusick talks about surfing for god and and i just felt like he kind of talked about he was surfing for dad's approval Mm, you know uh, he's going he's trying to be i think the top the concept of and hopefully this isn't too different from what i just said but the the concept of what is a man hmm. you know what does it mean i recognize that i am male and i am a man and i uh, you know speaking for him speaking for myself speaking for you but i know for my in my story like what does it mean to be a man i don't i remember you know maybe being the age that other people said i'm an adult or i'm a man and i didn't feel like a man i didn't uh, you know and, and so that really stood out to me the The idea of having rites of passage, I love that part of the interview where they said, how do we initiate somebody into manhood? Whatever that looks like, right? Whether it's the typical, I need to be able to beat somebody up and like sports, you know, and all the other things that are stereotypical, or maybe it's not. Either way, how do I get initiated into feeling like I am? Maybe it's a version of feeling like I'm enough, feeling like I am enough of whoever God made me to be. Etc. So, how about you? What's anything sticks out from that?
1: Well, I, I, the idea of not being initiated into the masculine journey um, is very much part of my story. Um, Mm. I I would just say every part of every major transition in life, um, you know, starting from age 10, uh, you know, where I discovered porn and masturbation to having my first job at age 14. Um, you know my first motorized vehicle was a moped at age fourteen and then right. my first car i mean every significant stage of life i discovered that on my own um, wow. i had i had some uncles so my my mom's brothers were part of that and i'm super grateful um, they have been they have been blessings in my life but no real intentional mm-hmm. um, transition or initiation to the masculine journey and i I feel like a lot like what George described, I feel like a lot of my life, even into my twenties, thirties and forties have been, have been chasing a version of what I never got. Um, only to, yeah, only to find myself in a space where now I have to give that back to myself or, or find a way to, uh, to integrate that with other men, particularly men that I've, I found in Samson like yourself.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a, that's great. What, um, yeah, so you talk about, you know, being in community, being known, you know, uh, by men like myself and others. And during this journey, um, any what I have found myself um, at times, and I've helped, others have helped me become aware of certain moments in my journey. Maybe I just, you know, I'm thinking about asking a woman out, or I'm planning a date, or whether I'm thinking about a career change or whatever, and I'm thinking this is a question I wish I could ask my dad um, or I wish I could, and I still have my dad with me, but I I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I wish I somebody could help me with this. And I don't have that history of going to somebody and feeling like I could go to to a sage or go to somebody who would understand and would connect with me on more than just that. Well, just do that kind of a level. Can you relate to that? And, And if that's, If that's, if that's the case, what have you done in those moments when you, when you weren't used to having somebody to go to, and now you're, you're trying to be a healthier adult, you know?
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. And the the answer is, yeah, I find myself in that spot a lot. Um, And so, you know, first of all, I end up asking other brothers, um, Mm -hmm. you know, way the wisdom of my friends, but Three years ago, I, I joined a kind of a local Bible study. It's kind of an East Coast version of uh, John Eldridge's group. This group happens to be called Zoe. They're based out of North Carolina, but uh, long and short of it is I specifically started watching for men who were 10, 12, 15 years older than me further down the road, knowing that that was a gap in my own life and something that I desired and deeply needed so that I could get closer. So I, I just, I just went out of my way and asked these three men in particular and said, would you be willing to bring me under your wing? Would you be willing to mentor me? Would you be willing to just teach me about life at the next stage? Wow, Cause I, I, I don't have it. Um, I haven't had it. And, and for the last three years, these two individuals, one in his late fifties, one in his late sixties, um, have been willing to just open up about life. And, and of course they're, they're humble enough to, to describe not all of their, you know, successes because they've had mm. just as many failures as, as the next guy. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, what they've learned from them. And, and so I've leveraged, you know, men like that in my life, I've leveraged other brothers that I've met along the way and um, have started to piece together not only what I need, but then have enough mileage under my tires, that I can now offer that back to other men
0: as part that. of their own journey. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Step 12, you know, is, is giving it to the next person. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's powerful. Um, I it, it kind of a segue into another point that stood out on this interview that uh, I was a little, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this part. Um, cause this one kind of baffled me a little bit. I think it's just cause I don't have a lot of, context for it um but they were when you remember when they were talking about the the concept of um fighting somebody who could put you in a vulnerable position you know he talks about in jujitsu jujitsu and how he's developing this community in in uh, this fighting um uh this you know with these fighters in this gym um and and there's a trust and there's a mutual respect but there's also there's also this. I'm you know I'm not an undefeated fighter. I have lost. I have actually tapped out, you know, uh, in, in in rest in sparring with somebody. Um, but it's made me better. And I think Aaron said something to the effect of, or I I wrote in my notes like the losing makes us stronger. I even put a question mark next to it because the concept of losing, the concept of loss, is so baffling to me i've always wanted to win it's always been like a form of feeling like i'm enough feeling like yeah, i I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a man uh, yeah. uh, you know i'm successful it felt so personal to lose it to me I've, I've i've battled just that 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 competition um anxiety whatever you call it and and here these people are presenting this method of hey you don't have to hate somebody to compete against them, whether it's in the ring or whether it's a sports team or whatever happens to be, you can just, you can actually be, um, just competing and you do not have to be that uh, personal level. Right. And, um, anyway, it just comes up because you talked about these men. I love that they're investing in you and they're willing to share things that, uh, weren't, you know, ideal or things that maybe they'd even call them failures of their own. Um, I, I, I think that's great. I I
1: just, thanks for bringing that up. And I, I actually doubled down on how you felt most of your life. Uh, If I wasn't winning, then I wasn't protecting the insecure little boy inside of Mm me. And so it's, you know, I don't want to oversimplify this idea of recovery, but doing the work and really attending to with compassion and curiosity, the little boy inside allows for that healing to take place so that I can do what Brene Brown has said. And I, I don't have to be right in life, but I can show up to get it right. And Mm. I, and I, I love the way she puts it. It ties into what what you're talking about is I don't have to, I can be vulnerable enough to be wrong. I can be vulnerable enough to not have to win. I don't have to Mm -hmm. be right. All I have to do is show up and figure out how to get it right. Um, and that's, that doesn't come with willpower. It doesn't come with mantras. It doesn't come with slapping myself on the wrist with a rubber band. Um, it doesn't even come with just showing up in meetings. It comes with really slowing down and doing the work in community, in a safe community, and, and digging into those unhealed parts, uninitiated parts, uninitiated little boy parts yeah. of our lives that uh, I think George was getting at in his interview.
0: Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, I, at the end of the day, I have learned thankfully that I love that I love what Bernie you quoted Bernie Brown or you referenced her. You know, showing up, you know, and, and being being able to show up even in a failure has meant more to me than that what I thought winning would provide me. Yeah, you know, like I'd rather be with uh, with a brother like you in the moment of need or the moment of what I used to would think consider failure, and I, at least I'm with you. And you're with me. That's actually what my heart needed more than winning, you know, because there can only be one winner, right, at the end of the day and whatever it happens to be. But, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Good stuff.
1: Well, Paul, great to uh, great to reflect on the interview with you. As always, great to be with you. Um, and for the listeners, uh, we'll be back next week with Nate and Aaron on the Pirate Monk
0: Podcast. Arr.